Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. We have another beautiful podcast for you today, but yes, it's not like a beauty. It's not like a podcast on beauty like the other ones. Right, because Chris is sort of leading this one and nobody ever knows what he's talking about. So it has no integritas and therefore it cannot be beautiful. However, <laughs> if you wade yourself through, you will find many jewels in this about words and the meanings of words and Pope Francis and how you translate to Our Father and lots of things like that. And you might get some claritas. Who knows? Excellent. Let's hope so. So without further ado, episode six of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, now we are finally done talking about beauty. And that was, it's a huge relief to say that. We are right never now. done talking about beauty. <laughs> now we're back to ugliness. Yeah. No, yeah. that's impossible. Ugliness is lack of existence. We can't talk about things that don't exist. No, I'm just kidding. Those are, I love, I, I think uh, we could probably do a whole podcast just on beauty, but... Uh, but Chris has something prepared for us today. I do, and actually, it. I, think I hope. It, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You and me both, man. Uh, that is kind of related to uh, this, this this question of beauty and beauty in the liturgy. And this is uh, the what I'm calling the return of the paraphrase mass. Whoa! Yeah, Whoa. that is a very intriguing little yeah. phrase there, Chris. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe the. Do you know what the paraphrase mass is? No. Okay. No. All right. Let's let's come at it this way. Dennis, do you? I I know this is a difficult question. What do you remember the types of masses or the labels or the categories of masses that um, I suppose still existed to a, to a certain extent now, but especially uh, before the council? I mean, like low mass, high mass, yeah. misa cantata, misa recitata. Yeah. Spoken mass. Yeah. Well, this is this dialogue mass. Exactly. See, this this is part of. So you have low mass, high mass, solemn mass, sung mass, recited mass, dialogue mass, red Massachusetts. mass. Massachusetts. Exactly. You throw that mm-hmm. in there, it gets really confusing. And of course, these exist. The, the names of these, as far as I can tell, um, are not. We're not used in the same ways in different countries. They weren't used in the same ways at different periods. So, um, so, so we risk really starting off on the wrong foot here because it's so confusing, at least to me, but also I think uh, objectively. But you like to live dangerously, so let's yeah, take that so let's, risk. So let's try. But anyway, we throw that out uh, at the beginning that um, you know we're trying to be clear about a confusing topic. But I think generally, so when you would talk about a um, like a, a solemn mass, or sometimes in some places called a high mass. Uh, you would have a priest and a deacon and a subdeacon, and all the parts would be sung that are meant to be sung. And you do right, which meant you needed a scola of pretty good uh, caliber to yeah. sing the graduale romanum, which is complicated chant. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, if you if you didn't have a deacon or subdeacon, but you were singing everything, I think this is generally called the sung mass, or the misa cantata, and again, you had to had to be singing all of uh, all of the parts. Uh, now, against this, I suppose, would be called the low mass or maybe the, the red mass where you didn't you had no singing. 
Right, as I remember this, uh, Dennis, I think you could sing, you either had to sing everything or sing nothing, but there was not really this middle ground of progressive solemnity. Which Is that true? Over. Really? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Yeah, the, actually, the Misa Cantata was a Misa Cantata Sine Ministris at first. Oh, is that right? It was a decree in 1906 that you could have a sung chanted mass without the ministers. Oh, okay. And yeah, that was a permission that was given so that people could have some music, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, in the, in that in the low mass or recited mass too, there eventually came to be singing, but it wasn't the singing of the parts necessarily. It was singing non-liturgical texts, what we I guess we'd call hymns, right? Uh, during uh, during the time when other texts were recited by the priest or things like that. Is that right? You're yeah. So okay. in the in 1960, it was actually defined, you know, that the, there was two kinds: the sung mass and the low mass. And the low mass was called misa lecta, the red mass, R-E-A-D. And the sung mass meant the celebrant sang the parts that the rubrics required to be sung. Otherwise, it's a low mass. So, okay. but if it had the sacred ministers, it was a high mass. So that's the distinction: that the sung mass is a mass that's sung, but it doesn't have the deacon and subdeacon and the scola and all that. But it's still sung by the the celebrant. All right. So you get an idea, though. This, this is there's different labels, and it's not entirely clear. And, and, and as you say, different definitions come in at different times. 1906, 1960, things like that. Now throw into this what's called the dialogue mass, and the dialogue can exist, uh, I think, in these uh, solemn masses or sung masses or uh, recited masses, although not necessarily the red masses. And this is where. <clears throat> The uh, priest or the deacon. there is a cough button that we have for this. <laughs> it's the easiest thing to do. Well, it's easy when you are talking, and uh, that I have to cough. But when I'm talking <clears throat> and then cough, gosh, hey, there's but that's beauty. part of the revelation of his reality when he coughs. That's true. So that's that. true. Okay, so this dialogue part would be where the people would either sing in response or speak in response. You know, these these words that would go back and forth, rather than just simply say the ministers would respond on behalf. Right, of and that was introduced officially in 1922. Man, you're good, Dennis. Well, I have a computer in front of me, but they allowed people to join the servers in respite, reciting the responses to the ordinary. Right. And again, but all of this, you know, at least when you go back to the 20th century, I mean, keep going back centuries before, centuries before, centuries before, and all of this is changing, uh, you know, all the way through back to uh, the origins. Okay. But anyway, in the liturgical movement times, uh, they wanted the people to be more actively involved in the responses, right? And so this was one of the things that, uh, you know, we see the popes and liturgical movement figures as, as to teach the people how to sing the responses, teach the people how to sing chant, teach the people how to make the responses uh, in Latin and whatnot. Right? So there's all these different sort of pastoral strategies uh, to get people involved in making the responses. Well, there's one that I came across recently in uh, the, you know, there's this recent uh, biography of Annabale Bunini by, uh, I don't know how you'd say his name, Dennis, Yves Chiron. Have you seen it? Uh, Eve, yeah, Eve Chiron, but it'd be okay. Eve, Y-V-E. Yeah. Yes, and you have to say Chiron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can say it that way in Nebraska, but okay. anyway. Okay, so he's describing, uh, so uh, Bunini is quoted by Chiron in this book, Annabale Bunini, Reformer of the Liturgy, as uh, one of the things he did in 1943, he was uh, serving in a parish in suburban Rome, which again is, uh, you know, what an awful time. So this is under... Um, 
Yeah, the Rome was liberated by the Allies uh, a few days before D-Day. And so this is um, before that. And he's wondering how it is that he can get the people to respond. Now, I know reading things doesn't, Jesse doesn't like that, doesn't play well and stuff. But yeah, just, listen to, just yeah. listen to, though, this is interesting, though. Listen to how he describes how he's going to get the people to go into the responses. He says, I wondered, how could I have this people, with all their elementary religious instruction, participate in the Mass? Uh, above all, how could I make the children participate? So this is what he did. I started out by painting on big... Making s- a podcast. I started out by painting big signboards with the easier responses for the people to say in Latin. And after a few tries, I succeeded in having them said in unison. Then I did the same thing with signposts in Italian. By this way, as the celebrant went ahead with the mass in Latin on his end, a reader... Uh, made the people participate with Italian paraphrases based on the text. I knew what? that I, had, I knew that I had found the formula. The people willingly followed the mass. The inert and mute assembly had been transformed into a living and prayerful assembly. That's like a precursor to the like applaud light at a sitcom. <laughs> so understand what he's doing. He has these signposts or placards, or big pieces of poster board or something. And he's writing Italian paraphrases of the people's response on the, on the signs so that people can make them. And so this is the paraphrase mass that uh, Bunini, I don't know if he's the author of this, but at least was practicing in uh, 1943. This really does make me think of like you go to a football game and then you see these cheerleaders run on the field and they have like cheer louder or, <laughs> or do this or stand up and, you know, shout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the the thing is, and this is um, this is where I want to take this is this paraphrase mass from 1943 seems to be making a comeback of sorts in 2019. So, right. So eventually, we go through the council and the reform books and the post conciliar instructions. Uh, Dennis, the fourth one of which is called. Liturgiam Authenticum, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this is how Liturgiam Authenticum describes how you're supposed to translate. It says, the translation of liturgical texts of the Roman liturgy is not so much a work of creative innovation as it is of rendering the original text faithfully and accurately into the vernacular language. Sounds like Claritas to me, baby. The Reveal original text. Reality. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's a beauty question here. Uh, The original text, insofar as possible, must be translated integrally and in the most exact manner without any omissions or additions in the terms of their content, without paraphrases or glosses. Oh, so then we get rid of the paraphrases. Well, sort of, sort of. Now, if you follow uh, liturgical things, as I know you do, Mm -hmm. there's been in the news uh, recently... Uh, reports of how some European bishops' conferences are translating the Lord's Prayer. With paraphrases and glosses. With paraphrases and glosses. Wait, really? Well, okay, so this is... Um, so I po- thought they were just changing the deliver us from evil thing. Well, see, that is... Okay, so in the Our Father, the Latin is... Ne nos inducas in tentationem. Okay, ne nos inducas in tentationem. Do not... Uh, uh, do not lead us into temptation is how we would say it in uh, uh, in English. But Pope Francis try, you know, trying to explain this is saying, you know, God doesn't lead you into temptation. He doesn't lead you into sin and things like that. So how do we how do we understand this? And so some of the translations are now do not abandon us into temptation. Okay. 
But there's there's another one that has come up, um, uh, I think, more recently in the Italian version of the uh, of the Gloria. Now, and I should say again from the beginning, I don't speak Latin, and I don't speak Greek, and I don't speak Italian. But so. you, oh, I was going to say, <laughs> but I, I'm an expert in Italian. <laughs> so in uh, uh, so the Gloria begins, uh, uh, Gloria in excelsis Deus. Et in terra pax hominibus bone voluntatis. You know this expression, et in terra pax hominibus. What's that mean? And on earth, two men. Uh, pax, peace. Peace to men. Bone voluntatis. Yeah. Of goodwill. Yeah, so what, what is it that we say in English? Uh, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, peace, peace to, to people, people of goodwill. goodwill. Okay, so the Italian translation, which was recently approved, says peace of on earth to men loved by the Lord. So again, this is a English translation of the Italian translation of the Latin Gloria. Yeah, it's like what does that, goodwill mean? Yeah. It's like that Google game where you like translate things to one language and then back into another. I, well, it is kind of. Yeah. But I mean, this line, loved by the Lord. Again, even though you two fellas might not know Latin, is loved by the Lord anywhere in... Ed in terra pax hominibus boni voluntatis? Yeah, I don't see domine in there anywhere or any love-related words. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it seems, and again, I say it seems. I don't know these languages, and I think that, you know, I think this is important to discuss these days, you know, 50 years now after the Missal of Paul VI, you know, just how we're still sorting out the best way to translate these things are you a francis hater chris <laughs> no i'm not i'm a true i'm a truth lover okay uh but see but I, I i don't understand how it is that and i mean that seriously i don't understand i'm not saying there's not an, a, an explanation for it but it just doesn't seem to make uh, doesn't seem to accord with for example uh the the current legislation like liturgia authenticum that uh I just read from, you know, without paraphrases or glosses, or even um, there, there was a little adaptation to Liturgiam Authenticam a couple years ago by this uh, letter by Pope Francis himself called um, Manium Principium. Do you remember this? Yes. What do you remember? That had to do with who had the final say on translations and bishops' conferences versus the Vatican offices, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, May it, it changed kind of how ritual texts were approved in their translations and in their uh, adaptations. Um, who you know who? How did this? How did this process work? And again, this is what I mean, where it's been a fifty-year process on on how this uh, this comes about. Um, so, do you remember how it used to work before Monium Percipium of a couple of years ago? That was kind of complicated, right? You had these different color books and votes by bishops, then you'd send to Rome for an approval, right? But then they could also make changes, not just give a yes or no. And it was always very complicated. Right. Uh, oh, is this the, are you talking about the document where Pope Francis said, now you, the, the bishop conferences can decide something, but in the end, you know, the Vatican still has to do approval, but most of the work is done by all the councils for the nations. Yeah, this is exactly okay. what they're trying to sort out. And it's really interesting in, in the supporting documentation that came out from the, and explanations that came out from the Holy See, that these terms that they use between recognize and confirm, 
recognitio was the big word that they used to used to have is that the Holy See would have to offer a recognitio for everything, translations, textual adaptations, everything like that. Uh, but what was introduced uh, with Manium Principium, which appears to be kind of a, a recovery from um, the council and even some of these uh, texts that immediately preceded the council, is this thing called the Confirmatio. So you now have two different things, Recognitio and Confirmatio. Now how this is supposed to work is the local bishop's conference has to provide its own translations and any type of adaptations that would be appropriate for its own uh, uh, people. Like maybe the uh, in the in the marriage right now, there's this thing called the lasso, or the the handing over of what's called the aras or the coins. Is this the lasso of truth? Well, I don't I don't know. It's it's popular in Filipino culture apparently. Do you know anything about it, uh, Jesse? I do, I don't. We didn't do it at our weddings. My wife is Filipino. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't do that at our wedding. Okay. So in certain cultures, I think uh, it's like a, a veil or a garland. No, it's not a veil. It's a garland uh, that surrounds, I think, both uh, the bride and the groom, something like that. But it's, it's a culturally specific thing. And so the ritual, this isn't a matter of translation. It's a matter of introducing something into the ritual. Okay. So that would have to be uh, provide, uh, prepared by the bishops. And then the Holy See would give it a, a recognitio. They would, they would approve it in this way. But same thing before um, uh, before this this document, Minium Principium, they would give the same recognitio to all the translations as well. Well, what Pope Francis did is he put more of the responsibility on the local bishops' conferences, and less of the authoritative responsibility on the Holy See. Does this make sense? You guys still tracking this? Yep. Okay. Yep. All right, so but one of the arguments I've heard about this to beloved by God is that in Luke 2:14 it says glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to, peace to those on whom his favor rests, right? Mm -hmm. Which would mean beloved by God. However, that's not what the Latin text actually says. So the question is who has the right to interpret and change the Latin text. Translators are not supposed to change text. But someone thinks maybe pastorally it's more important to get the words that it should have said, but didn't. And I think that's kind of the stew that we're in here is trying to make it conform to the scripture line. Yeah, that's just it. I mean, it uh, what, what Liturgiam Authenticam will also say, Dennis, is that it's the task of the homily and catechesis to set forth the meaning of the liturgical texts. I am so the, with you, Chris. Not of the translator uh, to do that. You know, this is a good thing, too. I mean, also, I think in Liturgiam Authenticam, it says, you know, that the translator has to have an eye not simply and primarily on the, the Latin typical text from the typical edition, but also can look behind that and beyond that to... Uh, Latin and Greek uh, Vulgate versions and uh, Greek versions of the scriptures as well to let those inform it. Yeah, but again, it's um, it's a stew. <laughs> it's it's confusing. I don't know if we're reaching clarity or not. See, because how this is supposed there, to there's little claritas here. <laughs> well, and see, there is little claritas, and I think what is it can potentially be at stake is the power of the liturgy to reveal the truth of. Uh, the reality, which is the, 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 the priestly work of Christ, the high priest, seated at God the Father's right hand. Right? And this is, Chris, is this different 
then in the episode we talked about uh, uh, Pete and repeat where we talked about repetitions in the liturgy and the language and the way things were written. This is different because it's citing a very specific thing that's quoted in in the gospel. Is that is that why this is different? Uh, it's similar because the translation, see, it's like this, and I'll, we'll get to a, a, an example in English that we can maybe sink our teeth into a little bit here. Uh, you know, the church has been working for millennia on how to say, right? Cardinal George's uh, motto for the liturgical institute was worshiping God the way God wants to be worshiped. And the church has been working on this for centuries you know, even extending into the Old Testament, you know, before Christ. And so, you know, she's been developing this, uh, what I like to call like a liturgical lexicon. You know, there's a right way to say a thing and a wrong way to say a thing. She's been trying to find the right words for hundreds of years. And so to translate those accurately without paraphrases or glosses is to retain uh, the substance of the church's uh, wisdom that is going on, so that, that has preceded us by so many years. And when we start to paraphrase or gloss the liturgical texts, we inevitably end up losing some of that substance. It, the, the language ceases to reveal uh, clearly and integrally uh, uh, what it's meant to try to, to reveal. So there's a lot at stake here in, in, in translations. But you, but like you said, there's there's a lot to do here because you're also going from, you're, you're it's not like one language to another. There's a couple of different languages involved here, and you're trying to get, you're also trying to get the cultural, you know, um, there are cultural ramifications for the way the words are being said too. So it's not even just like a direct translation. Uh, that's true. I mean, each. You know, the, there are very many uh, elements that a translator has to consider. One of them is the, the receiving culture. See, and even this, I think, is, I don't know. I don't, I'm not quite, <laughs> not quite satisfied with the title of this thing called Monium Principium. What is the Monium Principium that they're referring to? The great principle. Yeah. What is the great principle? I don't know. Okay, what it says in the letters, the great principle that, lit well, in fact, I'll read it exactly here. The great principle established by the Second Vatican Council, according to which liturgical prayer be accommodated to the comprehension of the people so that it might be understood. Okay, that's the great principle. But do you remember what uh, this sacred council had in view? I mean, this is, this is the very first paragraph of Sacrosanctum Concilium. This sacred council has four aims in view. Yeah. So there's four great principles. Truly, one of them is adapting where possible those institutions and places where possible, adapting those to the needs of modern time. That is a great principle. Mm -hmm. But there's another great principle of these four that says to, um, what does it say? To foster whatever can promote union uh, within the church. And so there's a, there's a balance and a, and a proper healthy tension between adaptation of the people and uniting these disparate groups of people into the one body, which is the church. So that's a great principle, too. So there's conflicting principles. They're not conflicting. Uh, I think they are, uh, they both have to be there, I th but they have to be balanced. 
um, it's not enough that, hey, it doesn't matter at all. It's like parenting kids, I suppose, Jesse, right? You know, you know, you have the one same goal to unite uh, the Weiler family, okay? But you need to treat, you know, the five-year-old different from the three-year-old, different from the newborn. You know, each of them has his or her own individual and specific needs, but the end game is the same to kind of unite all of them into the one single family. This is sort of what's happening with the liturgy is, is there's some, there's a degree of adaptation to different cultures, but in the end, well, I mean, complete the sentence, God became man so that, so. Man can become God. Right, the end game is not simply. The sanctification of man. Yeah, it's not God's accommodation to us, end of story. It's so that we can be transformed and accommodated into the life of the Trinity. So there is, there, these aren't conflicting things uh, individuality and unity, they're held together necessarily, but sometimes they get a little bit out of balance. So this may be my fault, Chris, but I feel like I'm wandering around in the forest and not seeing the trees. What are we actually talking about here in this podcast? We've got all <laughs> kinds of things going around. <laughs> Francis and Magnum Principium and translation. What we're talking about is the return of the paraphrase mass. Because, ah. because there, and, and again, this is, uh, we are kind of wandering around you know, for 50 years. This is, uh, I said in a, in a presentation once that the church is learning how to translate. And somebody said, what do you mean? The church has known how to translate for a long time, but how to translate in such a way to keep all of these things in mind is taking a long time to figure out. And we're still trying to figure that out. So this podcast, The Return of the Paraphrase Mass is, are our translations returning to paraphrases or are they... Um, translating wholly and integrally without gloss or paraphrases the substance of the Latin texts, right? And I say the jury's still out. We're still figuring what out. What else is being paraphrased other than that little section of the Our Father? See, now that, well, that and the Gloria are the two examples that are at least newsworthy uh, today, okay? See, so one of the things that Monium Principium changed is that it says that uh, local bishops' conferences are to translate faithfully, and so the question is, is uh, peace on earth uh, love, to those loved by the Lord, is that a faithful translation of et in terra pax hominibus bone voluntatis? We could just do, we could just sing the Latin. Well, yeah, you could. <laughs> you could. Well, actually, well, part of the reason I didn't know where we were going is I was looking up the Greek of that phrase from Luke 2.14. And it actually, literally, in the Greek is... Peace on earth to men of goodwill. The word is anthropos, men, and then whatever it is, uh, irene or something is for goodwill, a peace. I mean, so the, the Greek original is quite well translated in the, um, in the Latin, in the yeah. missile. But it, it's this love by the Lord, which I think yeah. you touched upon a little bit. But that's because the English translation says blessed by the Lord. But, yeah. even, but the English translation is not that good a, a translation. <laughs> I don't think so. I didn't No, not that in the one in this. Oh, the, of the, Bible the translation of the yeah. Italian translation of the Latin text from the Greek New Testament. Well, no, the English <laughs> translation in this version of the Bible that is oh, often okay. quoted for the reason why it should say love by the Lord. Anyway, Chris, did any of this happen in the third edition of the Roman Missal? Okay, yeah, let's, let's take this an example. Remember in the sacramentary days when the priest would say, the Lord be with you? What would we and say? also with you. Okay, what was the Latin text? Et cum spiritum tuo. Et cum and with spiritum your spirit. tuo. Yeah, and with your spirit. All right, so we went from, in the sacramentary, a paraphrase to a more literal translation, right. uh, and with your spirit. 
Okay, so what was to be gained or lost by translating it, by losing the paraphrase and retaining a more integral and accurate translation? Because uh, because it, it tells you a little bit more about that interaction about what was actually happening. Because that's what they that's what they would say they would say the spirit with you. Yeah, well, it's uh, to put it in in Dennis language, it would be revealing clearly Integritas. the ontological reality of this uh, dialogue between the priest and the people. Right? So some of the uh, Old Testament precursors or foreshadows is um, you remember when Moses feels all stressed out and overworked and he can't handle all these people? What happens? He goes up to the mountain. Uh, well, what does he ask God to do? Oh, I don't remember. You remember, Dennis? Uh, no. Okay, so he, the Lord takes uh, some of the spirit which is upon Moses and he places it upon 70 elders. And remember, two of these elders were away from camp and they start talking like they're Moses. And is it Joshua and Caleb? I can't remember. Are uh, jealous for Moses' sake. Like, hey, what are you guys doing talking like you're Moses? You're not Moses. And they go back and they tell Moses this. And he says, oh, if only everybody would do this. See, but this is the point is that to have the spirit of Moses is to stand in his person and speak with his authority. Now, something happens now when you say back to the priest uh, and with your spirit, it is as if... This foreshadow has been fulfilled and the spirit of Christ has been placed upon uh, the ordained man. And now he deigns to stand in the person of Christ and to speak with his voice and his authority. You don't get that. That makes sense to me. So let's use it. That's why we use it. And that's right. But again, the church has been saying that for centuries, only for, you know, that time immediately following the. Uh, the council were we not saying that and we've kind of lost so we are getting rid of some of the paraphrases yes 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 at least in English well that's the question that's the question well, yeah, that, <laughs> just <didn't. laughs> uh, no, it, it's trying to, you know, if you're if you're interested in liturgical signs and symbols and how the liturgy is practiced, then, you know, the, the, these types of uh, documents and legislation and how they're applied should be of interest in you because it's um, it, this it, it's one of the sacramental uh, media through which we come to encounter God. And to get this, the church's sacramental symbolism wrong um, uh, doesn't make it radiant and clear and refulgent and integral. So there's, there's, there are some benefits to these paraphrases. They make it easier to understand, but there's some cons to it as well insofar as some of the substance is left behind and, and left along the way. So that's it. I mean, is the return to the paraphrase mass question? I mean, are we... How, how it's, we're still sorting it out. What's the best way to translate these uh, such a way that God is glorified and the people are sanctified? And I, it's would, certainly would it not fair, an exact science. Would it be fair to say that when we got to the Latin, there were Latin paraphrases of the original language? Well, I think maybe Dennis touched upon this before. I mean, how c- closely are these Latin texts in the Missal accurate, accurate renditions of, say... Uh, the Greek text of the New mm-hmm. Testament. It's right. conceivable. In fact, there probably are places where there's a little bit of discrepancy there. You well, know, I'm looking already- at something called the Blue Letter Bible, which is really cool. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but mm-hmm. it puts the English side by side with the Greek. And then it, it'll link to all these other places where it appears. And so that phrase, which is Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
comma, goodwill toward men. Um, that is the literal translation of the Greek. The peace is irene, eudokia is goodwill, n is toward, and men is anthropos. So whether people translate that wrong is uh, something else, but the, it seems to be quite close to the Greek original Let's just in that version the of, of the scriptures, though, right? Let's split the difference and just say, and also with your spirit. <laughs> See, but that, this is one tiny example. You know, the, obviously the Mass is filled with language, and, um, you know, to, to, to hit upon the right formula of translation that does justice to the Church's traditional language and allows the people, according to the great principle, to engage in that language so that they can become saints and share in the, in the saving work of Jesus, that's, that's what we're striving for. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't think it should be a mystery that we're still trying to trying to find the best formula, but it ain't easy, and it certainly is not clear um, just how to go about this. Anyway. Yeah. Do you think we should paraphrase the answer to our liturgy question this week? Oh, yeah, sort of. definitely. <laughs> so why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This email comes from Rudiger. I'm not kidding. They, they signed this Rudiger. Excellent. Rudiger says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, hello Rudiger. Rudiger. I just, I don't know that's how we wanted it pronounced, but I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, Rediger says, I am so thankful for your podcast. Well, we are so thankful that you listened to it. Uh, he says, I'm still trying to catch up being a late listener, but in every episode I learned so much. Well, you're welcome. It's the most we could do. Rediger says, I had a question about the use of multiple collects in the ordinary form. In the extraordinary form, I noticed that there are times that multiple collects are used. In the past couple of weeks, the calendar has had a few days in which multiple saints are celebrated and given as optional memorials on the same day. Can a priest use both proper collects at the same mass for each of the saints that could be celebrated that day? Or must a priest only celebrate one of the optional memorials at the mass? And if time allows, could you talk about the best way to celebrate multiple optional memorials in the context of the Liturgy of the Hours? I think we could do that. And by we, I mean Chris. 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 <laughs> yeah. So uh, what's this practice he's describing about multiple collects? You know? Well, in the extraordinary form? Well, I, I'm assuming you know? this idea that uh, you have you can celebrate multiple saints on one day, so you need to have that, right? Maybe I think it's uh, also what happened that I think in in some of the feasts and solemnities in the in the calendar, the extraordinary form would have and they'd be celebrated as an octave. And so if you had, say, uh, Saints Peter and Paul would run for a whole octave. So for eight days, uh, as I understand it, you would say that collect um, as the uh, for the eight days. I thought the only octaves were like Christmas and Easter. Yeah, in, the, in the ordinary form calendar, that's the case. But in the in the calendar for the 1962 missile, there's there are many more octaves. 
And so you would have to account through certain texts for that octave. Meanwhile, you've moved on to, say, another certain day. So Another would, octave? <laughs> well, in some cases, yes. I think, uh, uh, say, uh, the birth of John the Baptist is June 24th, and Saints Peter and Paul is June 29th. And so, yeah, you, you there's multiple layers, I think, that would... Uh, uh, kind of stack up and so you'd say different uh colics on the same day and then you get a saint in there and so um yeah you'd end up with a lot of colics that are opening prayers uh in the so this explains this curious i don't know curious to many this um rubric in the general instruction this is at number 54 that says at mass only a single collect is ever said because um, that, that practice then of, of the multiple collects is no longer uh, observed. So that's why there's only one collect. There can only be one collect at the Mass. Okay, so how do you determine which collect you're going to use if you have multiple saints to celebrate that day? Well, you, uh, in another place, the germ will say that you can only celebrate one. You have to pick one, and that's the one you use. So is if there... you do have two saints falling on the same day, you can't celebrate both. You just pick one. And use that. Is there anything that you can use to like hierarchically decide? Sure, sure. Well, there's the in the um, universal norms for the uh, Roman calendar. Is that what it's called, Dennis? Norms for the Roman calendar. Uh, there's a, what they call a hierarchy of uh, liturgical days, table of liturgical days, and it ranks them according to their precedence. Now, if you have two of them that are of equal ranking, then you just have to pick one. Okay, and yeah. so I I assume this is how it is for the liturgy of the hours too. Yeah, for the liturgy of the hours, same. You would uh, you would, you would just have to choose one that is of. Uh, I mean, the calendar. If it's of a higher ranking, the calendar will tell you which is of the higher ranking. But it's when you have two that are the same that uh, you can make a choice. But yeah, you pick one and only celebrate one. All right. Rudiger, I hope this answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or <laughs> what just said that twice. Or tweet us at liturgyguys. Or you can tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. Whoop whoop. All right. Thank you and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.